everyone, I'm Britt and welcome to Educate Me, a podcast where we share stories of surviving and thriving in graduate school. This week's guest is Connor Shiggins, a PhD researcher in glaciology at the University of Liverpool. We chat about doing a PhD in the UK, working from home, and taking on the challenge of learning new skill sets. Hi, Connor. Welcome to my podcast. Uh, can you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Connor Shiggins. I'm a first year PhD student at the University of Liverpool in the uh, UK, uh, and I studied last year's in Greenland. So um, I'm glad to be here and uh, have the opportunity to give us uh, an opportunity to talk about, well, science and PhD stuff. Yeah. Okay, so tell me more about your research because I have no idea. <laughs> um, yeah, so I have um, quite a few research interests and I've done some different stuff um, throughout a short academic career to date. But my current research is looking at um, marine terminating glaciers in Greenland and fjords within Greenland. So I look at the outlet glaciers from the ice sheet um, in Greenland and look at the vulnerability to climate change and look at the vulnerability to their internal dynamics. And recently, and the majority of my PhD looks at a process called uh, glacier carving. So that's basically the production of icebergs. So when the ice falls off uh, the glacier, I look at that and what are the processes involved and what are the implications of that process? Uh, because we all know what happened to the Titanic in 1912. Um, yeah. <laughs> Consequently, hit an iceberg, and uh, around fifteen hundred people died. But the the iceberg was generated from a Greenlandic uh, glacier. That obviously it's very difficult to tell which one exactly, but it was from the either west or southwest coast, um, and it hit the Titanic. It was either forty-two or forty-eight degrees north, or something like that. So it travelled quite a far way down from Greenland. So. Um, as the ever-increasing tourism in the Arctic and places like that, it's really important to start to understand the risk posed from uh, Arctic environments. So uh, I, I don't, I'm not doing Titanic for my PhD, just to say. Um, but no, that's, that's what I do. Um, that, I really like that. That's a, a good way to relate it to what's in the public mind, though. But something you said made me think, um, so did the iceberg hit the Titanic or did the Titanic hit the iceberg? See, that's a great question. So I was, reading, I was reading a paper before lockdown started over here in the UK, and they think they saw it around about 500 metres before it, it did hit. Um, but I would have to say it's got to be an amalgamation of two, really. Probably more so the Titanic hit the iceberg, because the iceberg was always going to be there without humans anyway. So consequently, I would have said the Titanic hit the um hit the iceberg but they they sent obviously the rescue teams went to depths well they went to the shipwreck and they think they found the rescue teams found the iceberg that hit the titanic um because it had red paint smeared all over it so they could only assume that unless there was red people were going around greenland painting their glaciers red um it had to have come probably from the titanic um yeah yeah so, uh, historical archives are really uh, interesting as well. So, um, but that that's probably the one thing that people associate Latis and Icebergs with is with the Titanic, of course, probably one of the biggest historical events. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm over in uh, Alberta, Canada, right near the Rocky Mountains, and so we have lots of glaciers, as we call them. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and we have some major ones up in the Jasper Parkway, and so yeah, that's a big issue with climate change here and watching the glaciers melt and not not come back. So that's really interesting work that you're doing. Yeah, they're beautiful things and the scale of them and um, the Arctic in general is just an amazing place. And the amount of, like you say, climate change and all the current processes and the vulnerabilities that we're going under, the Arctic is one of those environments which is very susceptible to a lot of change. And it's not just glaciers, there's permafrost in those regions, which is thawing, as we've seen in the from Russia, you saw that oil tanker spill 20,000 billion tons of oil into the river in Russia and it's now turned red because of uh, permafrost thawing and causing right. damage too. So we're seeing big impacts on humans through changing environments in the Arctic. Did you see, uh, I just saw it circulating on Twitter, but there's a video of a mudslide in Norway just carrying houses into the water. Did you see that one? Yeah, it's a different sort of way to move your house. Um, <laughs> Um, but no, yeah, they, I'm not sure what happened. I've only seen it once, but my mum tagged me on Facebook in it thinking yeah. that I can explain, I can explain from the one thing I've noticed about doing my PhD, I get told to 
explain every single thing that happens in on planet earth um but yeah <laughs> yeah that does happen <laughs> yeah and it yeah it was i don't really want to go in <laughs> try and explain what happened but yeah it was sort of the the land just went from underneath and then ended up in either the sea or the lake or wherever it was situated and it was yeah it was very 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 dramatic and uh it has yeah. gone, it's gone like yeah it has gone viral um to say the yeah least. i think that'd just be absolutely terrifying um yeah. anyway so tell me what is doing a phd in the uk like um do you do a master's first or do you go straight to a phd like in the us uh and how long is it taking you to do a phd yeah so i was listening to the podcast that you had done previously with the uh another american that you mm-hmm. um, had that pod with and it was uh quite alarming the differences between the two so the average PhD from what I could take away from the previous one in the US is around five to seven years yeah um, yeah give or take. In, in the UK we get given three to three and a half years with the funding um, and you are supposed to have submitted within four years um, but you want to try and do it within the three years or three and a half years however long you have funded obviously because it's difficult to get extra funding or circumstances in terms of being able to extend financially unless something has obviously happened um externally but yeah we the it's becoming more and more apparent now that people in the in the uk and it's probably more so across the world as well that it's you sort of need to have a master's to get onto a funded phd course because there's limited phds going that are fully funded um and even though they're fully funded they're not exactly you're not rolling in money to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but you are, you are, you can support yourself and just about have your head above water. Um, but then because they're fully funded, there's not many of them. They're so competitive. So the issue is that people who want to go from a BSc to a PhD, there are people who are applying for those who have MSCs and maybe a couple of years worth of industry um, experience. And consequently, those people who have, who are slightly older, potentially have some um some more advantages on their side but that doesn't mean i know people who have bscs and went into the phd straight away they're probably a little bit older um but in recent years getting onto a fully funded phd in the uk it seems very apparent that you basically need to have a master's which seems to be the minimum requirement and either have or a pay either have or in the process of having a paper published but at the age of 21 22 and you've probably just come out of uh your bsc to have a paper published is um is no mean feat and it's arguably quite unrealistic at that stage of people's yeah. careers um so it's becoming ever more competitive and it can be frustrating i know a lot of friends who have masters and have done really well for themselves but they don't even get to interview stage and they've had seven applications um put in but because it is so competitive which is and it's only going to get worse with funding and things like that. And obviously the whole crisis at the minute, I don't see how that's going to work in our favor. So yeah, a lot different to the US, um, I would say. Yeah, I think like that's pretty similar to at least like Western Canada. I, I find things can be quite different across Canada. Um, but yeah, most people, well, you need a master's to apply into the PhD program. Um, but sometimes, particularly in engineering and some of the sciences, you might start in the master's program and then skip up to the PhD and not complete the master's. Um, but for the most part, yeah, like I did a, a two-year master's and then they say a PhD should be four years um, in Canada, but it also really varies. Like I've heard some of the sciences that they suggest seven years to do it. And I'm like, why would you even start if you know it's going to take you seven years? But Seven years is mad, isn't it? That's, um, that is a long period of time in which um, you can have your undergraduate degree, master's and PhD here in seven years if you did it. Um, yeah. within the time constraints but then for one PhD for seven years is uh, crazy yeah that's a lot yeah so yeah it, it's really interesting to me how much it varies but yet it's all an equivalent degree in the end um, so that's yeah, also really exactly. interesting yeah you're absolutely right and to say that like you all come out with the same PhD a PhD is a PhD at the end of the day and it doesn't matter if you do it in Spain or Guatemala or in the UK you all get the same PhD but there's no universal criteria for those for different countries everyone works off their own um politics in a way I guess um, yeah absolutely like, yeah it's I, the same thing. 
Yeah, I got to watch a, a friend's defense of her PhD uh, in the Netherlands the other day. Okay. And that was really interesting because even the defense was so different from ours. Like uh, it was only an hour and uh, the examiners were called opponents and, but it was really like, it, it was really formal, but then the, it didn't feel formal. Like the actual conversation that was happening didn't feel that formal. Uh, so that struck me as really interesting. And then I, or is it in Finland or something, they get a sword when they defend. So also like the process you go through, uh, to get that PhD is, can be quite different as well. I mean, yeah, I mean, Paul and a poet, yeah, the people who are, um, you're defending your PhD in front of his opponents, it sounds like playing tennis or something like that. It doesn't really sound like it's, um, a PhD um, interview style thing. Yeah, <laughs> or really like adversarial, like you really have to, you like you, it's called a defense, but at the same time, like how defensive are you supposed to get in a, in a defense? Well, the answer is like not at all because then that doesn't come off very well. So yeah, um, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I know like our school started calling it like the oral exam component and things like that to try and. Oh, really? Yeah, like it's still called the defense, but when they refer to it in our policies, a lot of time it's referred to as the oral exam component. That sounds like you're going back to like year 12 in our year in our system and doing like yeah. a French exam in front of your teacher or something, calling it an oral um, exam. It feels very uh, school-based. Um, but yeah, like everyone does it different. And it's, it's interesting to see, but it's good to talk to people because we're in the UK in like bubbles of everything the UK does is the only way in which we do it. But it's interesting to talk to people who are, in different systems uh doing different things and it's interesting to see how it is even though you are doing basically the same thing it's yeah so different yeah and even things like um like what we call candidacy or candidacy exams are uh like comp uh or comprehensive exams for others um like those really vary and even like uh within my own university i've noticed is that things vary so much between departments. And so when people start asking me for advice on like, oh, well, what did you do for candidacy? I'm like, no, we're going to find you someone in your department because like my experience is probably very different from what it actually is for you. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And then of course the difference between countries or between institutions is even more than. Yeah. It's not even comparable sometimes. Like we don't. So the word exam doesn't really come across in the UK for a PhD. Like they're probably the most, two different things like there's no entrance exam there's no um there's no exam during we have like progression so at the end of first year and stuff like that, i've had my progression where you give a mini defense of what you've done so far and then you get t- um, torn to shreds over basically what you've done for the last year and oh, no. they, they, don't, they, they don't tell you it's wrong but you have to give like a 20 minute 25 minute presentation and then they well they ask questions more so advice um as they call it um so they're they're like progression steps through uh the PAC system which might be something similar to an exam or something like that in the states i don't know but yeah we we have more informal the formal things that have to happen but they're not you've got to go sit in a hall and they're not called exams and things like that so i think it's trying yeah. to take that scariness away because we're one of the overtested nations in the entire world the uk it feels like you sit in an exam every two weeks when you're going through school and uni oh yeah you do <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. It's crazy <laughs> actually that it's funny because one of the reasons i i was teaching in the uk and i left to go to grad school um but okay. one of the reasons i left as well was because the gcse exams were going up to 100 percent of the course grade and i just yeah I just thought that was insane. I was like, I don't really want to teach in that system anymore. <laughs> it's a broken system, to be honest. It's been broken for years on end, and we have a big, we have a big focus on like the theoretical and the, um, yeah, like the traditional way of teaching in terms of exams, exams, exams. We have no practical sides to things. So, geography for me, obviously, that's part of the reason I got into doing what I do. Um, but there was barely any fieldwork components in the GCSEs because it's difficult to organise the logistics of it are difficult. Yeah, but then, of course. Then how do you expect people to then want to do geography when it's basically a field-based discipline when all you do is sit in front and read R-squared charts and look at the population density of Mumbai, um, which is interesting. There's no two ways about it, but there's no break compared to other things as well. So it's, yeah, the system needs a reform, but... I think there's a lot of reform that the UK needs and it's not just the educational system. So consequently, 
Um, <laughs> it's quite, I can imagine why you left. My sister's just gone into teaching and yeah, it's not something I think I would want to do personally. Um, yeah. Not right now anyway. Yeah. And it's, um, it's interesting because I then went into uh, studying formative assessment uh, and looking at, now I look at formative assessment in higher education, but basically the field of formative assessment was very much pushed and kicked off by researchers in the UK who are saying we're so focused on exams. Um, but what could actually improve learning is this idea of formative assessment and actually providing feedback and using assessments as a way to provide feedback to students, but also as a way to provide feedback on your teaching. And that exactly is yeah. much better. Like, I think it's a much better way of doing it because we sort of get we get stuck down and it's not very it's not very it's not good for the kids either. I don't think because if like mock exams you're coming out with like a D or an E or something and then there's no there's no practical element that can actually be, if you do a practical assessment, because not everyone works in the same way and consequently but everyone's being tested in the same way and it's very difficult yep. to get out of that system and unis in the UK are very similar. There are different sort of assessments, but most modules at like your university EBSC levels will at least be 50% exam um, and it's still, it's basically just ingrained in the UK and it's, it flows through the veins of universities in the UK. Um, and I think people go to university to get away from the exams, but if you do that, <laughs> you are slightly mistaken. Um, but there might be some courses out there that aren't as heavy uh, exam-based and others, and I'm sure there are, but uh, yeah. not, the, not the ones that I know of anyway. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then uh, you're, the terms you're using also makes me laugh because when I'm doing my research, I also have to like do a vocab switch because what you call a course, we call a program, and what you call mm -hmm. a module, we call a course. Or right, a okay, so, or a so interlinked. So it's all interlinking basically. And um like I said, this is the thing that it's the same with like the PhD component we're talking about everyone's differently. We're all doing the same thing around the world. We're all doing exactly the same degrees. We're doing the same programs or courses, whatever you want it, but everyone you're all, like I say you're in different um vocabulary and you're using different terms. And yeah. But then it confuses everyone because everyone thinks, wow, that looks so much cooler because it's called a program or wow, it's so much cooler called a course, but it's basically the same thing. It's um, the same thing. Yeah, actually, like in my field too, there's a lot of talk about the modularization of education in higher ed and mm -hmm. how that prevents basically feedback from being as effective as it could be because everything's modularized. Um, mm -hmm. And so I started off thinking like, oh, like that's really interesting, like we don't have the same discussion in Canada. Does that mean we don't have the same problem? And actually we do have the exact same problem. We just haven't decided to problematize it. Um, yeah. Because we do also break things up into courses. And um, in fact, I was talking to a program coordinator where his program is, um, it's all broken up into, into courses that from different departments. So it's an interdisciplinary program. And they're trying to do like a curriculum review of courses that they have no control over. Uh, so then you get into like hyper modularization. So uh, yeah, I think you're exactly right. There's, there's all the same problems. We just might not be talking about them in the same way or even talking about the same problem at the same time. I think, yeah, academia is so different, but realistically everything is the same and every academic and every PhD student is basically overworked and the... <laughs> um, um, it all sounds easy but it's not easy and slightest yeah yeah so, so so speaking of it not being easy um what would you say has been the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome while in your phd studies great question there's been so many um <laughs> I think probably having to start learning new skills at a rapid level to where I need to be. So whilst I look at remote areas in the Arctic, to go to those places is very difficult. So consequently, we look at the Arctic through remote sensing techniques and we look at, um, we look at, we look at satellite imagery a lot of the time, but then that means that we have to manipulate that imagery and we have to use a lot of techniques and I use a lot of coding to get out the output in which I want, basically. But 
coding is not something that I've ever done before. I'm not a computer programmer. I'm not, I've never been that sort of person. And it came to me when I was halfway through, probably about Christmas time. It was like, right, you need to start figuring out how you're going to be able to start coding and being able to produce publishable data and uh, all, all the rest. And it's one of the things I found with coding is, is that it's a do as you go and like you can go to as many talks and as many lectures and as many seminars as you want but until you do it you won't be able to achieve it it's like playing football or playing american football you can go to as many games as what you want but it doesn't mean that you can play it um and if that's been the biggest learning curve in terms of doodle and stack overflow and the dark web has become my best friend on how <laughs> get some interesting code out that works but there's a lot of stuff out there and but no one can teach you it they can teach you best practices they can teach you that you need to put a semicolon there or you need to put a square bracket there instead of a, 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 a whatever it is um and that's been the big problem for me and it gets frustrating at times because if today's been an annoying day because i've been running some code and looking i've been looking at sea level um in greenland fjords and i'm trying to figure stuff out but the days go by and you don't actually get anything out of code sometimes so there's no output from it and then you might have written 55 lines of code but then you look back on the day and think god i've produced zilch here i've got nothing out of today um and then i like to be able to look about what i've done in that day or that week or whatever it is and see oh yeah i've made good progress here but sometimes those days, aka today, has been quite tough. Um, yeah. So I normally just go grab a beer and just hope for the best, and that tomorrow, tomorrow's a new day. Yeah, that's that's so true, and I think um, I think that's a, a pretty common frustration. Like I'm, I'm, a, I do mixed methods, so I do a little bit of quantitative methods, uh, but it's not my favorite, and definitely the stats uh, gets me down, and I'm trying to make sense of things. Uh, but I haven't gotten into trying to code my own stats, which is what a lot of people are now doing in R. And I'm just like, nope, not going to go there. That's uh, that's deeper than I need. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I stick to the pre-written programs and that seems to work just fine for me. But Yeah, I think it's, um, I've noticed that in the last five years or so, everyone has switched to coding on some sort, depending like if it's R or if it's Python or if it's MATLAB, there's a you choose which one you want to do. I use Python because it's open source and there's a big push for open access research and things like that. So yeah, yeah. I'd like to do everything that it's reproducible in that sense and anyone can do it. Um, but like getting started is probably the hardest bit. And once you get to know the language, it's like I, a lot of people say it's like learning a new language and I can't speak French and I can't really speak Python, but I can get <laughs> some form of output on it. Yeah. um those uh it's the getting going on it and it's very frustrating and it's very annoying at times but it can it does get better once you do it but it's it's that initial start of doing it is the the, the difficult bit but if you can get into it it's a good transferable skill to have and in glaciology anyway i don't know a phd student who doesn't use code in in one sense of the form, even if it's just to write one line of code to open a shape file or do some data analysis, it's nothing crazy, but um, it's becoming a skill now that is sort of seen as essential, really. So the more you do it is better for the long run and your career, I think, even if it's a bit more basic than I, I can't code. I'm not saying I can code, I can't, but I can do <laughs> something. <laughs> uh, so if I could do more than what I could do six months ago, so I see that as a win. So yeah that's progress absolutely um yeah you made it you made a good point as well about especially when you're in the phase of like you're just writing or you're working kind of on your own um from home and measuring progress and being able to look back and say oh i accomplished something this week or in the last few months uh do you have any tips and tricks on on how you're doing that or um any ideas for others of how to to gauge that progress um, I think it's sort of got to be done by the person, um, in a way that they feel comfortable to say that they've achieved a lot. So I talk to PAC students who are either part-time or full-time and I sometimes look at some part-time students and think, wow, you've done loads, like you're 
seeing this as full-time, but then you look at other PhD students who are full-time and you think, oh, really? Um, <laughs> you've, achieved, you've achieved this in five months or whatever it is. Um, and I think it's down to how you um, scale it and how you, um, yeah, how you measure it, I think, is on that and what standards people have of themselves because it depends. I also think about what you want to do out of your PhD. So for me, my long-term plan is hopefully going to be academia. But mm-hmm. to go into academia, it seems like you need a trillion papers flowing out of every orifice in your body and have <laughs> 25 high-impacting papers. Um, so the aim for me is to basically try and get as many papers in the next four or five years to set myself up long-term. So that means that certain things have to move a bit faster for someone who potentially is just doing a PhD to do a PhD to have it under their belt, which is it doesn't, it's not necessarily a career move for them. It's just something they want to do and want to write a a hundred thousand word, a hundred word, hundred thousand word thesis um, on a research project that they find really, really interesting. Um, so I think it's very dependent on what the person is looking to get out of the PhD, what they're hoping to achieve. And but then I find it difficult to measure progress because no one else measures it apart from yourself. And okay your supervisor I guess you could sort of call it your boss but they're not really your boss and they're not going to fire you for having a day off or something like that so yeah I think the, the mentality of the individual is very important and the way in which in a way it's a way of dealing with your PhD I think for me is looking what I do is I get everything up that I've done that day if that's like I've written part of a manuscript and then I've written 50 lines of code and it's produced one plot I'll then look at that at 6 30 at night and say right I've done something today um and then I have to turn my computer off and I'll start I don't fresh in the morning um so that's how I try and look at it just to see and think yeah actually it's hard on days when there's been nothing achieved and you've done nothing and you're looking at a blank computer but um there are more better days than bad days for me anyway so far which is um hopefully going to continue I think <laughs> yeah hopefully I think that's so key to think about as well though is that like just because today was hard or today felt like nothing worked, uh, particularly when working with code. <laughs> uh, I think there's a lot of days like that where like, I've written lots of code, but none of it has worked. Um, is to keep that perspective of, uh, of it, it's just a day. Um, one thing I always say, which I'm glad I'm not a doctor, is that when I've had a bad day, I'm like, well, at least no one died today. <laughs> yeah, like there's worse things in the world um, yeah. in terms of, or productivity. Exactly. And so, uh, yeah, I think of also like what's in my realm of control and, and how can I do that? But, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a compulsive to-do list keeper because even if I can get like just a couple little tasks checked off, then, um, then I felt more productive. Yeah. I've I've got to admit, I do have a week to-do list and then a a day to-do list. And then that's how I feel that that's been achieved but I think like you say it's sort of working within your means as well so consequently I think the COVID crisis has impacted on like work within your means so for example I need to use a lot of internet in which my landlord is not too happy about but um, my wi-fi is terrible and I'm not on the university server to what I normally would be so the stuff that I want to run takes triple the amount of time compared to what it would do in the office but like you say that's out of my control but it's just remembering that I can't control that and it's not something for me to be frustrated at myself about it's just it's just life really um yeah yeah absolutely how else are you dealing with uh working from home because I mean being in the sciences you're probably in sort of like a lab situation where you have other people in your office that you work with and now you're working from home yeah, I think the bit that I've struggled with the most, so I work in an office and I, most of them are like coding based or like they are very computer based like I am. Um, but it's like the the bouncing off of ideas of like research. And there's no one in my office who does glaciology. There's people who do rainfall in Africa. There's people who do coastlines. There's people who do archival work on human geography. Hmm. But I don't, they're not going to be able to help me tell me how a glacier carves, but it's, it gives me a, an outlet to talk about my research for 10 minutes and it gives them an outlet for 10 minutes. And it's then, Oh, have you ever thought about doing it this way? Or have you ever thought about it? Have you ever thought of it from this angle? And consequently just talking about research is something that I have missed. I do. Yeah. We have me, I have meetings in the week with people and I, we've started the seminar with some friends of mine who are doing PhDs just to talk 
what I don't know idea what the other people are doing, but it's just a way in which that everyone can talk about the research in a, a safe space with other scientists. Because obviously talking to your parents or your girlfriend, your boyfriend, but there's going to be no, they won't be able to come back with anything. It was more of a, they're more of a sponge taking in the information because they don't, they're not in the environment of a PhD, but talking to other PhDs, other academics, they're at least in the mindset of PhDs, despite it being in a different subject. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So I found that probably the hardest bit. The Wi-Fi is probably the worst bit. Um, and but yeah, the in a serious note, it's the research bouncing ideas that just the office environment I miss really. It's not seeing anyone. Um, and well, it's not looking great for the future in terms of being able to get back into the office anytime soon. So. Um, but then again, that's just life and you've got to accept what you've been given and you've got to make the best of what you've got. Otherwise, um, it's not going to get any better. So I think I think the the research ideas is the hardest bit for me anyway. But, but then you know, some people really struggle with productivity and they've not been able to do any work. So I feel, a lot, um, I feel for them a lot more than I do myself. Just I want to talk to someone and have a coffee. Um, <laughs> I don't feel too bad for myself. So... Um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm the same way. I mean, uh, in my program, you don't, you're not guaranteed an office space. Um, but oh. yeah, it varies. Like we just have too many grad students for the size of our building uh, is really what it comes down to. So you're guaranteed office space like in your first couple years. And then like basically they kind of say, well, once you have your data and you're just writing, uh, you, you can write elsewhere. So um, I probably worked like, 50-50 at home anyway already uh, and in my master's I worked a lot from home too because same thing I only had a had an office for part of my master's um, and but even then what I found was not a lot of students actually use the office space and so you might be there and working on campus and you're still working by yourself and so I ended up trying to find like other spaces on campus where there are other people that I would know who yeah you can have that five ten minute conversation about um about what's like what you're working on or what's going on just even like saying out loud your like what the problem that you're currently working on and then uh just before i guess as of january um i got an office space actually in an office that people used so it was great because there are already always people there and always like a chance to chat um and then yeah then we got, all got uh, got sent home basically so I miss that piece. Luckily, my uh, partner, my husband, is a uh, educator as well, and so I can run things by him, and then he'll he'll be able to ask questions. Um, so that's pretty lucky that we're in a similar field. But yeah, that whole like when I'm like oh frustrated with like the software programs I'm using, um, he listens to the frustration. But yeah, it's just it's that sponge and doesn't really have a oh have you tried doing this, which other people sometimes have. So yeah. Yeah, I think I think having that safe space is the wrong word, but having that space as a workspace, and I say if you want to work from home here, um, you can do, but there will always be a desk um, there if you want it. And I think it's a good system. A lot of, I reckon half of our office work from home most of the time and then half of them come in. Um, yeah. So, but then it's just a good balance as well. Cause you, see, you see everyone, the regulars every single day, and then you see the other people, and then that's a different dynamic in the office as well. So consequently, it's um, it's a good working dynamic that's in that office. It's a mix of um, different research ideas and no one is the same. So it, it's very dynamic in that sense. But then it also means if you have a specific problem on your topic, it's quite difficult to chat about that certain issue, um, which in a way is good because everyone is now so remote and online. You can just send a message to another PhD student who's working on um, a similar thing or your supervisors available online or something just drop them a message and I found the contacts with people in a way has been better online because everyone is online and has no excuse to not reply <laughs> um, so I found that better everyone seems to reply to emails a lot faster including me so um, yeah that's true yeah, yeah. Um, it also sounds like you're able to keep a pretty good boundary between like work and after work like like what you said about oh yeah it's like five o'clock, 6.30, whenever, and you just shut off the computer and tomorrow's another day. Um, is that something that you're consciously doing or is that just like a habit that you have? Yeah, it's always been something that I think in the office is fine because that sort to me is my like safe space. That's work to me. So I would normally get into the office for about eight o'clock in the morning and then I'd normally finish up about half five, six. Um, 
and then I come home and there, there wouldn't be the facility to work. I've got my laptop, but I can't do certain things on my laptop to what I can do at work. But then the one of the main issues that I've had here is because I have my work computer at home, the being able to switch off and the first week of the COVID crisis when we were locked down, it was the 23rd of March here and I worked about 85 hours that week because I just couldn't turn off. I just couldn't stop myself from doing work because I thought, well, I have the facilities here. Like, why am I not doing work? I've got plenty to be getting on with. So why am I having, why am I finishing at six o'clock and why am I not finishing at eight o'clock? And then, but then the following week from that, I was physically, I hadn't done anything. All I'd done is work, but like mentally I was smashed. I couldn't do anything um, for a day. So it, I then thought I can't continue this. So it's sort of, yeah, it's having that switch in your mind from work to no work. And this is your time now you've done your contracted because we are contracted um, for 37 and a half hours a week. And that's the, they oh, say that's the minimum, that's the minimum hours you have to do every week in our contract as such. Mm. Um, and like I said, I, most people probably do double that. Um, and I don't know many people who go under it, but that's what the, they try and say at the start, treat it like a full-time job. That's what they yeah. say and work, work the hours of a full-time job. But I 9.9 .9 out of 10 people I know all do far above that recommended minimum time allowance um, because there's too much to basically do. Um, yeah. So. And, and does that also include any teaching that you would do or research that contributes to like someone else's project and not just your thesis? Or is that just like work that you're supposed to be doing on your dissertation or thesis? From what I'm aware, it's supposed to be on your PhD. Um, but the teaching here in the UK differs from institution to institution. So I don't know what it's like in America, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but we don't have to do any teaching. It's not a part of the program. We can just teach if we want to teach. So I do. I go into labs and I'm a demonstrator in a lab with six of the PhDs and there's 120 undergrads who do experiments for five hours and we basically sit there, they put the hand up and we go over and say, what's wrong, basically. Um, yeah. It's normally, they don't, they don't know how to use Microsoft Excel. So they're, yeah. normally do, they're normally doable resolutions. We don't need to do any work before them. Um, but they don't take... They take chunks out of your day. So ours at Liverpool is about six, seven hours of my day goes on that, but that's only on a Thursday. Um, but at my old institution where I did my master's, I used to do some demonstrations for the third years. And then that would only be a two while five on a Thursday. So their labs were run twice a week on different days. But right. at Liverpool, is all, the whole lab is done in one day. So it means that I come in earlier and I leave later because I need to do it. But I, because I make my hours up, anyway it doesn't impact on me in terms of that but it's relatively well paid and it's a it's something that tips over and it's a nice little inflow of money for compared to what we do get paid um it's a nice it's just an extra bit that makes something it makes it a bit easier i think but um i would take the opportunity and would suggest anyone who is a phd looking at potentially doing something i would definitely suggest doing it because it's first of all something different as well. I think it's you get to interact with um, budding geographers in my case, who nine out of ten of them want to be there if they're not hungover. Um, and <laughs> it's, it seems I really enjoy it because it probably is something different. But because I do it, you then like I say you had to make the hours up because even if it wasn't in your contract that you that was included in the time of work, you still lost five hours of your Thursday to basically sit there and babysit first years so yeah <laughs> yeah it's uh it like varies by program for us but um for me any teaching or research assisting that I do so working on other people's projects um is above and beyond my PhD hours but uh well I mean I don't even think I work I don't know it's hard to say I I wasn't very good at tracking my PhD hours before like I'm better at tracking my working hours for other people because I have to like claim those to get paid um mm -hmm. but I'm starting to track now and and uh I'm like oh yeah I should I should put more time <laughs> into that um but the teaching is is really fun so yeah I've gotten to be like a teaching assistant and then I've also gotten to teach a couple of my own courses um 
and having been a K-12 teacher as well before, it's something I really love. And uh, yeah, and then a lot of our programs here as well, uh, like you get like a minimum funding package. So it's like your contract, but we're not really contracted. Um, uh -huh. And part of that minimum funding is like being a teaching assistant. So a portion of that money comes from being a teaching assistant. So in those cases, I would argue those students should consider it as part of their PhD hours, but I know that they don't think that way and their supervisors don't think that way either. <laughs> yeah, we have, ours is more split in. So we have PhD students and then we have graduate teaching assistants and the graduate teaching assistants are people who are doing PhDs, but their PhD is part-time. And mm. then they have half PhD in the year, half teaching, and they get paid slightly more than us, but their PhD is a six-year program or five-and-a-half-year program, and but they're, then it's, they're expected to teach. That's in their contract that they're supposed to maybe run a seminar every week or something like that, and they need to prepare more stuff, and they may mark more work. Um, but then the funded PhD students aren't expected to do that because that's not their role. They're just asked right. to help out on labs and I think the dynamic works quite well there because if you are interested in like gaining teaching like proper teaching not just going into labs like I do like running seminars or tutorials or whatever you do maybe even a lecture at some point I think it's a good way which is financially supported and you still get your PhD at the end of it but you then have to commit six years of your life um, to do it instead of three years where you could then go and get a postdoc at halfway through your third year and finish your PhD off um, while starting your postdoc or something. You don't have the opportunity here um, with, a G, uh, with a graduate teaching assistant because you need to go into, you have six years basically. So um, mm. but for some people it's great. So, and it's tax free in the UK as well. So we don't pay tax on the studentships, which is. Right. Yeah. Same uh, here. Yeah. It makes our, it makes the studentship a lot cheaper because uh, but a lot lower pay because we don't pay tax and yeah absolutely yeah what what looks like a pretty uh terrible salary then when you consider that it's not tax you're like oh actually it's it's not too bad but it's, it's oh yeah exactly it's okay and like i say the uk enjoy a bit of tax so consequently i'm not too upset that i'm not paying it so <laughs> yeah <laughs> awesome well uh yeah any other like tips or tricks that you would like to pass along to those listening uh for managing working at home um i would just say try and treat it as much as you can as your office space or um people who work from home religiously continue to do that don't change routines because i changed routines for the first week or two and it didn't help me in the slightest um but like my computer was set up in my bedroom um and it's very difficult to get out of rubbish habits of like not getting up for three hours because you don't need to go and get a coffee with your mate who's just popped into the office to say do you want to go yeah. out for half an hour or whatever it's trying to remember that actually I am allowed to like leave the computer after four hours of sitting there and you've got everything through to arthritis because you've not moved in five hours so consequently I think it's worth um trying to have the mentality of continuing the lifestyle you had before the whole pandemic and for lucky luckily for some people so new zealand has gone back pretty much to normal today so people yeah, who are in that, the, yeah. countries, the countries who have dealt with it properly are now there back to normal and it's shown that it does you it can work and hopefully that more PhD students will hopefully start getting back to a bit more normality in the near future in countries that are dealing with the pandemic better than uh, the uk and harder with the us as well so um yeah try and continue as normal and don't get bogged down in small stuff and just remember there's um it's a phd that's all it is it's not the end of your life even though it feels like it sometimes yeah i think uh that's a good thing to remember it's just a phd and uh you are not your phd so exactly yeah you, you hear all these things but when you start you don't i never thought about it like that i always used to see this when i was doing my master's year and i was like oh that won't be me and then I did it and I was like, oh yeah, that's me now. So consequently, um, yeah. <laughs> well, and I think like it's, it's hard to separate them though, because I think those of us who get to this level of education, we were like this all the way through, uh, like thinking all the way back to primary school. Um, like we were, most of us at PhDs, we were the ones who were 
top of the class and were uh, teachers' pets and were um, and did take that sense of validation from our grades and that continued all the way through secondary school and all the way into undergrad and then now we get to PhD and and we're expected to not um, take that as part of our identity and we're supposed to now extrapolate ourselves from our school identity and I think like that's nearly impossible when we've just spent I think I'm in like grade 25 or something like that now <laughs> so when you've spent like 25 years uh, having this closely tied identity and then trying to to separate it I haven't figured out how to do it yet I think we should do it but I haven't figured it out yet I think I agree with like because obviously you get a so I class myself as a glaciologist so if someone said to me if I went to a barbecue tomorrow and they said oh this is Connor what do you do I would say I'm a glaciologist I wouldn't say that I'm Connor Shiddins, I live in Liverpool, I was born in Yorkshire, I was, I would just say my job title and everyone in the working world has it, they're a businessman, they're a carpenter, they're a, a window fitter, whatever it is, but there isn't, I don't know how you get that separation because you are part of your work and you're very proud of, well I'd like to think most people are proud of what they do and consequently um, the job and the job title comes along that is sort of ingrained in you as a person and but then taking the separating the two, I don't know how you do it. Sort of like Venom and uh, in the Marvel movies, you yeah. can't get away, can't get away from um, the host because that's what you are in a way. And I think having the ability to deal with that is a very good and proud thing to have. And I would never change. I would never want to say that. I'm not a glaciologist as my first introduction as myself because that's what I see myself as. But I'm also a person at the end of the day. I'm just bone and flesh. I'm not a glacius, so consequently. Um, but I think you've already taken that first step because like, when you introduce yourself, you say, I'm a glaciologist. And when I introduce myself, I say, I'm a PhD candidate or a PhD student. And maybe, like, and maybe that's the first step is then to say, well, actually, no, I'm an educational researcher. Um, and then, and I mean, that's the first step of separating. It's connecting to the, like taking up the research as your identity versus taking up the student role as your identity. And I think for a lot of us still in the, in the PhD is that student identity that is difficult to separate. Um, and I know, I think in the, in your PhD, you don't do any coursework, do you? You just do the research? Just the research as yeah. always. So for us, like we had to do, well, I had to do two years, yeah, about two years of coursework first. And then once we pass, like once we, yeah, once we propose our research project, then we pass into this, what's called your candidate now. Um, and then, so I don't have any coursework anymore. I'm just doing the research now. Um, but oh, so that's why it's PhD candidate then. Oh, okay, now I don't yeah. why it's PhD candidate. Yeah, that's um, why that's why we call ourselves PhD candidate. And it's really funny too, because if anyone calls themselves a PhD candidate before they've actually passed candidacy, they get like raked over the coals. Like it's so bad. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I think I think like you say, the the terminology for how PhDs are. So there are three terminologies really. It's PhD student, researcher, or candidate, I would have said. And I try to refer to myself as a researcher because I want to get the word student out of my head because yeah. whilst you are affiliated with the university, if someone was to tell me that I was a student, I would, apart from the student discount and dominoes and everything, obviously. <laughs> um, but everything else, you are not a student. You don't live a student life. You might go to the pub every so often and things like that, but it's not, you don't live the student lifestyle whatsoever. Um, and I think yeah. the first big thing I did was to basically just get away from that student mentality because you're not a student anymore. Yes, you are learning and yes, you are taking on a lot of information that you will never ever take on again. You, 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 you are a sponge, um, but you're not a student sponge. You're a PhD researcher or candidate sponge, in my opinion, but some people would disagree and say that they're students. So whatever you feel comfortable with, I think defining yourself as a certain thing and if you're happy to be defined in a different way or that way then definitely 100% call yourself that or identify with yourself as that so that's how I sort of deal with the identity of a PhD can you say just that last bit again you broke up a bit 
There we go. There's the Wi-Fi going. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, yeah, that's, that's how the way that I deal with being a PhD is that I define myself as a certain thing and I identify as that as a geologist and as a, a PhD researcher, not a PhD student. But that's probably the wrong way about it and probably not the right way. But uh, that's how I get on with it anyway. So. No, I think that I think that makes a lot of sense. And and um, I'm reading a book actually uh, about like the academic job hunt, and she talks a lot about separating yourself from that student identity. And I think yeah, that that is a step in the right direction to say no, I'm I'm a researcher, and not and not just like hold on to that student identity. So no, I think you're going in the right direction, and uh, I'm gonna try that out. Uh, that's my challenge to myself now is to introduce myself as an educational researcher. <laughs> there you go. Hopefully it'll work. If not, it's not my fault. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I think I'm in like grade 25 now, so it might take some time uh, to yeah, shed this student identity. Like I've, I only, like I taught for three full school years um, before I came back to grad school. But uh, even then I still had a first day of school every year. So I was thinking, I was reflecting how like, since like I was three years old, I think I started like preschool and I've never not had a first day of school or like a first day of the school year. So, um, and I mean, that's starting to happen now in being, um, being uh, out of classes, but even then, like if I'm in a teaching role, there's always a first day of school. So uh, yeah, getting out of that student mentality, I think will take some time, but we'll get yeah, there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no one will knock you for it, I'm sure. So, Awesome. Well, this has been so great to chat with you, Connor. I've really enjoyed our discussion. Um, anything else you want to add or, uh, yeah? Uh, no, just continue doing what everyone's doing and keep smiling through the entire process, not just now. It'll all go back to some form of normality at some point and you will hand your PhD in and it will be okay. So uh, I'm the big picture sometimes and don't get awesome I, I, I like that it will be okay and uh, I'm gonna end with our tagline of it will be okay and stay in school <laughs> there you go yeah <laughs> awesome brilliant okay I'm just stopping the recording Maybe it's freezing. My mouse has decided to freeze. Of course it has. <laughs> okay. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Educate Me. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and subscribe on Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. A huge thank you again to our audio producer, Sean Paris. Next week's guest is Eric Fraunberger, PhD candidate in neuroscience at the University of Calgary. Until then, stay in school.